Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya C, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to Trials with Maya Z. Today, I have a dear friend of mine in my next episode, Carol Crafton. She's not only a dear friend, but also uh, a patient advocate, one of the advocates that I've been following for quite some time, a real force of nature. Carol, you're involved in many initiatives, doing a lot of things. So can you just present yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yes, thank you, Maya. Hi, everyone. I'm a long-time patient advocate. I've been winning an organization now for coming up 10 years for chronic and rare diseases. I'm a person with a multitude of health conditions myself. I don't have a rare disease as such, but I do have rare bone anomalies, rare gene mutations, and other rare qualities that make me as a person rare. And I don't actually sit under any umbrella per se, but I do have many other friends and contacts within this, this space who also sit under that same complex umbrella. And we do actually work a lot to try and advocate for changes to help people with complex lives as patients. Mm. We also work a lot with uh, in the space for clinical trials, um, pharmaceutical industry, uh, uh, medicines development, patient engagement, um, health literacy, and uh, basically anything that's going to make uh, um, patient lives a little bit better. That's super important, Carol. And I witnessed when we started Find Me Cure, you were probably one of the first people that I met on different meetings to raise the patient's voice. And I know how dear to your heart this is because you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for everyone else. I know how much you've supported other people to start their own things as well. Carol, I mentioned to you that in my podcast, we're speaking about what makes or breaks clinical trials. And so far, I've been bringing primarily clinical experts, like clinical research experts, or let's say different technology leaders. And it was about time to really bring the patient's voice, so to say. I wanted to ask you, where do you see clinical trials in patients? What are your observations today? I think it's actually vastly improved. And I, I, I have to say that I think that the COVID pandemic has altered that because people took part in COVID trials, for instance. And um, I've noticed within my own community now, when I'm posting things about organizations who are running um, trials, because a lot of my members have fibromyalgia, there's a number of different types of trials going on. It's mm. not just the same old standard uniform type of trial, a lot of different sorts going on. And they're actually getting involved. They're interested, which wasn't there nice. before. Um, you know, you don't want to thank the world for having a pandemic for bringing that forward but it's actually yeah. tweaked interest in people to actually get involved in research which is yeah. something we've been supporting as an organization since we began getting involved with and advocating for people to get involved hmm. yeah i agree with you and i also have to admit that i've seen this shift in mindset when it comes to clinical trials at least more people know about it they have heard about it 
So that's definitely positive. What about access to clinical trials? Do you think it's changed? It's a bit difficult, that one, really, when you think about it, because it depends on the trial and it, it depends on what you mean by access. Because if it's a remote trial, it's going to benefit any patient. It's going to benefit the caregivers, mm. the families. In the UK, it's a bit different to the likes of some places in Europe where you have to travel hundreds of miles to get somewhere. Or mm. if you live in, this, in America where you're traveling thousands of miles to get to, wow. get to a, a site location. Here in the UK, it's different. You might have to travel 300 miles, maybe down to London from up north mm. or go travel up north to Edinburgh or something like that. But it's still a hindrance when you think about mm. fatigue and you think about time and expense. But I'm not actually 100% sure yet whether or not it's improved mm. um, because yeah. data starting to filter through. And all this talk about decentralizing trials and things because there's lots of different ways that people are trying to approach it. I don't think that a trial could ever really be 100% remote. I think yeah. there's always going to be an element where you're going to have to be attached to the trial site. Yes, you can speak like we are now, video calling and teleconferencing and things like that. There's no reason why meetings can't happen, but physical things like testings and scans can still be done a lot easier without a patient traveling to a trial site because even here in Sunderland, there's an MRI unit. It's in a mobile van. Oh, you can technically have mobile units that go to locations. So, yes, maybe a patient still has to travel, but not as far to, right. say, where a trial site is because yeah. you could, um, a mobile location might go to a specific city. So they might maybe what, travel 30, 40, 50 miles instead of traveling 200. I don't know. Yeah. For, for access, I think it depends. You speak of access from that perspective, but when you speak about access, about whether or not you're talking from the relationship with doctors and whether or not doctors are putting forward the idea of clinical trials, I'm not so sure whether that's happening. Because a lot of the trials that I'm putting forward are coming through social media. They're actually coming through newsletters uh, from organisations and companies or they're coming through social media itself. And I dare say it as well, that the last few, there are a number of them posting on Facebook mm -hmm. where communities actually exist, which is what we've been yeah. saying for years now, mm -hmm. you know, that where communities are. During your initial surveys, you get them in, you attract them in, and you're weeding out the people who are no good for the trial during that survey at the beginning. Yeah, maybe it's not 100%, but you're right. It's one way to, to do that. One area of access is can you actually participate with the schedule of the trial or let's say the location of the research center? Would they fit your schedule, um, your lifestyle, your disease even? But the other access is exactly... Do you even know that clinical trials exist for your disease and how do you identify this clinical trial? From what I'm hearing, um, most of the times you actually understand that through social media and advertisement. Okay, so it hasn't changed much. It seems that way to me at the moment. From That's just through observation. But, I mean, niche communities, especially within the rare disease space, find out through different means when it comes to mm -hmm. what trials and things are available or, or what's going on 
social media are just a, a part of that. They're just a yeah. part of the, the pathway. But we all work together as communities. So if something crosses my email feed yeah. and it, it's suitable for one of my colleagues from a different community, then the first thing I'm going yeah. to do is forward. <laughs> and it's yeah, going to go nice. because that's how we operate as communities. Yeah. I mean, you've got to scratch each other's backs and, and help out. You are always going to know somebody who's going to be in need of something or somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Exactly. It's about networking, isn't it, at the end of the day? Absolutely, Carol. But what about companies? Are they proactively coming to you saying, hey, we are starting a clinical trial in this area. You have this network, for example. Would you share information on the clinical trial? Do they come even actually one step further? Let me ask you, like, to contribute to this question. Do they even come even earlier before they've even started the clinical trial to ask you, what do you think? Where should we engage with the patients? Who should we ask? What do they think? And so on and so forth. It's not true for me on a personal level, but okay. I know from organizational levels that, com that companies do approach organizations with respect to clinical trials and for people getting involved. Whether or not they're doing it at the right time is always the question that I have at, at hand. And as you you know me, I advocate strongly that patients uh, are involved right from the get-go, from trial design. So, I mean, are companies doing that? Probably not so much, not yet. Mm -hmm. But I think it's changing. I do think that it will happen more as time goes forward. But uh, I don't know whether or not our companies are... I can say that, you know, from speaking within the actual mm -hmm. disease charities, the likes of the fibromyalgia charity get um, approached about studies uh, and whether or not they're coming from academia side or pharmaceutical side, but they certainly get approached about studies and trials. And I know that probably the Elostanlos one is uh, very similar for that as well, where you will get approached. It might not necessarily be a, a big, massive pharma company. And I think that's the vision. When you ask that question, do companies approach? That's the vision that you have in front of you is, oh, my God, is Pfizer getting in touch? Or is AstraZeneca yeah. getting in touch? Or, but it's more likely to be some uh, tiny little company. And because I'm in the chronic pain space, the musculoskeletal space, a lot of the trials that are coming our way are all to do with the cannabis-related drugs, for instance. So a lot of them are very small. But you also have yeah. to make sure that they are legitimate. So you might be getting approached, but are they real? Are they something yeah. that is worth doing? Or are they scam? I don't want to say scammers, and I'm trying to think of the right, the right term, but you do get approached. You mm. get approached sometimes by people who maybe aren't who you should be accepting to jump on board with. And I think that sometimes there might be a bit of desperation with smaller communities to actually jump mm. on board these things to get involved. And then down the line discover that they really wish they hadn't. It might end up costing them money and things like that. Sometimes it's like where you end up doing more of a product review, but it ends up costing you a lot of money. Actually, that brings me to my next question. How do you assess if one company is legit? Like, I, I would assume that it would require at least some time 
on your end to actually research and ask here and there. You also mentioned something else, which was very interesting. You mentioned that they might end up regretting that they started in the first place because they don't like what they hear. It means that they will have to transform their initial ideas a lot and that will contribute to the budget. So are there any similar challenges when working with other companies? Like I'm not speaking only about the big companies, but in general. To be perfectly honest, you've got to think small because you're not talking about big companies here. It's, it's got yeah. nothing to do with big companies. From where we sit within the big grand scheme of things, you're dealing with a lot smaller companies who are trying to find new treatments that can help manage conditions or they're developing devices even. They're not even developing drugs, they're developing Shoes that help people with musculoskeletal problems or balance. It mm. could be anything. So I think it, it, it really depends on when they bring patients in. I mean, yeah. for me, a lot of research goes in. If I get an email through and somebody's asking, we would like to get in touch with you to discuss collaborating on such and such, the first thing I do is, is, is check the validity of whether or not they they are a, a real entity because before you know it you've been hacked and your data's bit you know so like you've got to be careful because there are a lot of scammers out there yeah. and I don't know what it's like for other people but I experience this a couple of times of a week I get these kinds of emails wow. in and then I am checking them <laughs> why would I want to collaborate with you again I I'm not really sure. You, who do you say you are? And it's yeah. an email. It says reply to, and the email address isn't even the same name as wow. who it's signed at the email at the bottom. And it's dangerous. So yeah. when you're thinking about companies it, and the smaller companies, it's more complicated to assess whether mm. or not they're real because they're not one of the big companies it's a bit different mm. if you've got one yeah. of the even mid-sized companies contacting you because yeah. you know they exist you've got mm. a bit of a, a an idea you've seen their name in the news you've read articles about the things that they're doing but with the smaller ones you've never heard of them before that's uh, like an advice for them, really. Like, do your homework and make sure that you present some information before you send your next email. Make sure there is a, like a link to the company or publication or something like that. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you find this topic relevant, you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com. Since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. I want to bring you back to a topic that we, we just started, I think. Uh, again, access to clinical trials and uh, how do you get information about clinical trials. From your perspective, Carol, what's the ideal way for a patient to receive information about the clinical trial? I mean, there's like yourselves, <laughs> the widgets and the companies and organizations like Find Me Cure, for instance, mm -hmm. and also be part of research, the NIHR and things, signing up, okay. you know, for, for these kind of things is important. I do believe that if patients signed up more and recognized that these things existed, 
they would have a bit more success when looking for trials because I think a lot of people expect it just to land in their lap. They don't Mm -hmm. seem to realise that they have to do something as well in order for it to come to them. They can't just sit there and wait for somebody to go, oh, here you go, here's a trial. They've got to do something, you know, themselves, haven't they? I understand, but let me challenge you here because what... uh... It's kind of like controversial. On one side, the entire industry is screaming patient recruitment. It's super hard. We need patients, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other side, what you're saying, we need to, like, patients need to be more proactive. Actually, a few weeks ago, I was having these intense interviews with different patients with different cancer diseases and probably 100% of them, let's say not 100%, but a very high percent of them did exactly what you said. They were proactive. They were searching for information either through a friend or through a community or through some like general Google search and in like the internet uh, in general. Most of them said the doctor didn't even discuss this option with us. So Mm. I understand what you're saying, but is what you're saying because we lost hope that doctors can be more involved? Or is it because you really believe that the ideal scenario is we being more proactive? Both is the answer to that. Because I do believe that there is a percentage of patients who believe it will just fall into their lap. They can just sit back and wait for it to turn up. But that doesn't just apply to patients. That applies to so many different things, doesn't it? But doctors could be doing a bit more. I do believe that surgeries in my opinion, right, should have a member of staff who, even if they only worked one day a week, sat Mm -hmm. there and was attached to the surgery that dealt solely with this. So they Mm -hmm. weren't a doctor that was seeing patients for their illnesses and diagnosing and, and all of that, but they were there specifically to help patients get access to clinical trials. I think Mm. if surgeries could have somebody in the surgery that did that, then that would help. But it's Mm. always about about funding and financing and whether or not practices can afford to do it. But if there's a, a large population of patients attached to a surgical practice, then surely it's beneficial to uh, um, to do the, the research within your own practice to see where, especially when it comes to can- a lot of trials to exist within the cancer space, let's be fair, mm-hmm. yeah. okay? And a lot of um, studies happen within the diabetes space. The percentage of people with diabetes has gone through the roof. So you would think that they would start to look at it differently instead of putting the focus of, the main GP that I go to see, say, um, to find out about my health, them mm-hmm. looking for it, but for somebody else, employ, mm-hmm. make a new position within the practice for somebody to actually have that role. Yeah. So somebody could actually contact the practice and sit down and talk to somebody who knows mm-hmm. about the clinical trial space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People can be more proactive searching for trials if they know that trials exist. And you're right, COVID improved that a little bit. So people know what clinical trials are, more or less, let's say, but that still doesn't mean that a lot of people will actually know that this can be an option 
they wouldn't know how this exactly works, uh, how do they find the right one. So yes, they can be more productive, but at the same time, we also need to continue working towards better education. Anyway, uh, Carol, can you remind me, have you been ever a part of a clinical trial yourself? <laughs> yeah, a very long time ago. Really? Um, okay. For, 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 a med, for a medicine, yeah, when I was 15, okay. for um, an acne drug, believe it or not. Okay, uh, uh, and I, I don't. I love to talk about this because when people complain now, they should have been on a clinical trial like thirty years ago. For one, my mother had to translate what the what the doctor was saying to me because I he was a he um, had a broad Glaswegian accent and I couldn't understand a word he was saying. And my and my mum just thought I was being belligerent, but I wasn't. I really couldn't understand. And I was only 15, so yeah. I, I, I um, couldn't understand anything. All I knew was, okay, sign. There was a few disclosures, like uh, only being 15, there was a problem, like if getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, strong, which spun my mum into an absolute tizzy because I was only 15. <laughs> yeah, and they wanted to put me on a contraceptive because of mm. that. Obviously, I was only fifteen, so there was yeah. all of these disclosures and thing. I mean, it was completely different. And then you get signed, and then you go and you follow the procedure. And I was taking it. It was like four months I took this drug for. So once a month I would go. They would test my blood mm. and. But that was it. I mean, and then when I'd had taken it, that was it. I didn't hear anything else about it. Nothing. Did anyone came back to you, tell you this is what happened? And okay, do you think now this is improved, uh, Carol? What, what is actually better today with clinical trials, in your opinion? Well, you get to read about things a lot more than yeah. you certainly did. For me, the only way I got to find out that this drug went to market is because however many years later, when I was at university, one of my one of the people in my flat was taking it. Oh wow. And I said, I was on the, the trail for that. And they were like, Wow. Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought this is, a, you know, but that, that's how I found out. So it's a bit different. I do believe it's different now. I know yeah, that no. uh, there's still a big shout for companies to improve that feedback loop. Um, I do think there's room for improvement. I think that they could still do more. I do actually believe and stand on this heavily that if they implemented that engagement structure right at the start with patients mm. from trial design, then they can embed it into the culture. So that feedback mm. loop is there right throughout. You're not necessarily going to be using the same patient in trial design as you are as a participant for, for the trial. It's going to change. Your patients that you're engage, engaging with will change throughout the whole process from beginning to mm. all the different phases. It's not going to be the same people. But if you have this at the start, then you're you're already getting that feedback loop out there. But you have to translate it in a way that everyone can understand it. I'm not being funny, but for me, there's this way that everyone seems to think that even everybody who works within that clinical trial has an understanding of what everybody else does. Hmm. But they don't. I mean, that's not necessarily true. So it's not even just about the patients who don't understand things and need to know. You need your your sales team, for instance, could do with knowing what's going on at mm. the beginning. And your regulatory people should be there at 
star. Mm. So for me, yeah, I know, and I haven't said this yet, and you're probably actually surprised I haven't, but that um, multidisciplined approach where you have um, all your different stakeholders involved, it's not just about patients. So yeah. for me, has it changed? Yeah, it has, because th that is changing very slowly. But I do think it's going to change more because I believe that there are more and more initiatives and toolkits uh, um, now that are being developed to help guide these things into place to make it better. And yeah. for me, yeah, you know, in the future, yeah, I believe it's going to improve drastically. All you have to do now is look at plain language summaries, for instance. That's how they're feeding back this information. I mean, mm, yeah. it's getting recognized now. Yeah. But Carol, that. actually, the plain language summaries, and also you mentioned the regulators. Actually, that really cries for my next question. Do you think that the only thing we need to accelerate this change and let's say making it like change in clinical trials, it can be only accelerated, it can like the speed can be improved only if the regulators have a strong position there? I think that the regulators are the ones who are best placed to help make the changes that are necessary. And it's not that they necessarily decide what changes, that those decisions come from a group that, you know, what needs to happen to fill a gap that's that causing a problem from something from going forward, for instance. I mean, who are the people who... They don't just write the policies. They, people should be the ones who are also helping to campaign to make changes. This is what I believe that regulators are supposed to do. I believe that they're not just there to sit there and create a, a list of do's and don'ts of what goes on within a trial. You were all, if you want to make the most efficient trial, you have to prevent as many bottlenecks from the get-go because that's what costs you money doesn't just cost you money, it costs you time and it costs you energy. So your patients can help you, in essence, all of your stakeholders can help prevent a number of bottlenecks as because you can see them so far. I have a, an affinity to see bottlenecks before they come. I, I, it's natural. But not everybody has that affinity to be able to spot a bottleneck. But if you have a group of stakeholders... And they're all sitting there at the beginning and you're building and you're sorting out the design of it and you're sorting out all your protocols and everything, you know, for what the trial's going to be. Somebody in sales, for instance, is going to be able to spot then early enough what regulation needs to be put in place by the time that they're trying to put this to market. Hmm, that's and, interesting. I mean, these, for me, are things that most patients aren't going to be sitting there thinking about. <laughs> Yeah, of course. They will come with a different perspective. You're right. Patients are thinking about um, how are they going to access this drug after the trial? Are they going to get this drug after the trial? Or are they just going to be taking this drug during the trial and then get told that they can't have it? Um, they're the questions they're asking. They're the questions that they want answers to. But there are other questions as well, Carol. There are other questions that should be asked. You're speaking about the drug after it gets approval. But what about mm -hmm. the drug or therapy or medical device or whatever during the clinical trial? The patients will be the ones to see the bottlenecks around 
the location, like the how yeah. far they're willing to go, the procedures, the, their frequency, the, the type of requirements, the type of expectations, all these type of things that will actually help you understand which are these must-haves in your clinical trials so that your patients feel empowered, engaged, and they continue to contribute with their participation. So not even the market actions, but even before that, patients can bring this per, per, um, perspective. But I agree with you. Yes. It shouldn't be only about the patient perspective. It should be about a multidisciplinary perspective, like all stakeholders coming and discussing, which are all these bottlenecks, scientific, operational, uh, and everyone, everything else that we can actually predict and work upfront to actually overcome them. And we can continue this conversation forever. You're fortunate of know-how and I have plenty of questions, but we need to wrap up. So I have only one last question to you. Um, if there is one thing that, um, that can improve clinical trials, what would that be? It's not so much, if this is going probably possibly going to sound a bit off the beaten track, but for me, it would be the introduction of mental health support uh, to the clinical trial protocols, not just for the patients who are actually taking part in the trials, but for the caregivers, because the caregivers are going to need that mental health support probably a lot more than the actual patient who's taking the therapy. I think it is the biggest thing, the biggest change that needs to happen right now. Carol, thank you so much. I would just add that probably this applies not just for clinical trials, but just for any normal treatment. For everyone listening, Carol is attending multiple conferences and doing a lot of initiatives. So you can connect with her and learn even more about the things that she learned throughout her career. Again, Carol, thank you so much. It was really an inspiration for me. Thank you very much for inviting me, Maya. It's been a lovely experience to <laughs> sit here and record my first ever podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.